from a study guide for a stage production of Murder on the Orient Express, we learn, the first railway locomotive train was built in England in 1804. Generally dirty and crowded, trains in the early 1800s were made to transport goods and workers. George Pullman, an American entrepreneur, designed the first luxury train cars with sleeper coaches and a service staff for its passengers. While visiting America, the Belgian Georges Nagelmachers was inspired to recreate the experience in Europe. In 1883, the Compagnie Internationale de Wagonlis, Wagonlis meaning sleeper cars, designed a luxurious long-distance passenger train that traveled from Paris and Constantinople, later Istanbul. Described by one of the characters in the production, Monsieur Brook, as poetry on wheels, the Orient Express was a showcase of luxury and comfort, with mahogany walls and comfortable seating, and included multiple sleeping coaches with a restaurant coach featuring the finest European cuisine. Because of King Leopold II of Belgium's connections with the royal families across Europe, the train could cross through countries without border delays. Royalty, diplomats, business persons all patronized the most popular and fastest transcontinental European train. The approximate duration of a trip from Istanbul to Paris was 60 hours. A single ticket would be a few thousand dollars in today's currency. Train service continued until 1977 when the Orient Express was replaced by faster, more modern trains and air travel. During World War I, service on the Orient Express was suspended and later reopened with a new southerly route through Milan, Venice, and Trieste, and the opening of the Simplon Tunnel along the border of Italy and Austria. Known as the Simplon Orient Express, this train route became the most important rail route between Paris and Istanbul from 1919 through 1962, and it is the one featured in Agatha Christie's novel, Murder on the Orient Express. All that from New Stage Theatre's education associate, Drew Stark. The Pennsylvania Theater of Performing Arts in Hazleton will present Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express in the stage adaptation by Ken Ludwig, and it will open this Friday and run through Sunday, March 26th. We had a visit from actor Adam Randis, who is president of PTPA, Bill Amos, the director, Lisa Doherty, and Joyce Vandermark, actors. To learn more, Adam Randis. Murder on the Orient Express, while it is probably one of Christie's most famous stories, and it's the first thing that people think of when they think of the Poirot stories, too, it actually did not make its way to the stage for an extremely long time. Christie herself didn't want to write a stage adaptation of it. There's a number of reasons for that, including the fact that by the late 1930s, early 1940s, she'd actually kind of come to hate Poirot as a character and wanted to distance herself from him. And so they convinced her to do an adaptation of Death on the Nile, and she actually wrote Poirot out of it. She had somebody else playing the detective part and had kind of divided it up differently. So fast forward a large number of years. I never thought I could possibly play Poirot on stage, although I've always loved the character and I loved the ITV television adaptations with David Suchet. I loved the 74 movie with Albert Finney. 
didn't love the early 2000s adaptation with Albert Molina, but you know, you can't win them all. But I, I never thought because there's only one full length stage show that Poirot is a character in, and that was Black Coffee. And nobody knows the name and nobody would ever really put it on their seasons. Like, well, I guess maybe I can hammerlock someone to eventually put Black Coffee on their season. And then in 2017, it came out that Ken Ludwig, who wrote Lend Me a Tenor and, and many, many comedies, had worked with the Christie estate and they agreed to give him the adaptation rights for Murder on the Orient Express. And so he he had to do a lot of, of changes to, to put it on the stage. Um, for one thing, the cast of Orient Express is so expansive. In the original novel, they had the first and the second class carriages of the Calais coach as your potential suspect. And what Ludwig basically did was he whittled it down to a core of 11 characters, essentially. And among those, nine of the 11 were potential suspects going in. And so it was really interesting to see. I mean, Poirot is the same, but there were a couple of characters that ended up being combined with each other. And and they play around with that a little bit, too. In the novel, it was Poirot, and he was assisted by the head of the Wagon Lee Orient Express book, and then also the doctor on the train, who was Dr. Constantine, who was a Greek man, they took the doctor out. They actually gave the character of the doctor to another of the passengers. They said, oh, well, she's also a doctor. And they took the name Constantine. And Ken Ludwig made that the first name of Monsieur Book. So they still kind of kept some of the names and they kept the, the positions. But what they ended up doing was he mixed everything around to get a nice size core cast of 11 and... It was really fun as a Christie fan, which I have been my entire life, to see just how he played with all of that. What about the idea of the style? This whole production has to have a certain style, doesn't it? It sure does. And I rely on Bill, our wonderful director, to keep me in line with the way he sees the princess portraying her, her role. Arrogant, but elegant. Nose up, but nose in. It's, it's enjoyable for me to play the character, I, especially coming off a role where I was the director of a, a pretty contemporary show and now being able to play a period piece. And I am the old lady of the bunch, so I get all of the gray-haired roles that pop up, and I am grateful for all of them. Speaking of style, the play takes place in 1934. You know, never have you seen in quite a long time such a crazy detail in stylistic history. Art deco out your ears. And the script even says that once you're on the train, Art Deco. So I am really, really trying as hard as I can to put as much of that on the stage as possible because another really fun idea that popped into my brain was I want to build a train. And to the best that a stage can offer, I have managed to build two cars, a sleeper car and a bar car. Obviously, it looks segmented so that you can see inside of it when you need to, but for all intents and purposes, I have not compromised to the best of my ability. And it, from, from, from building a set like the train and putting it in the time of the 1930s at the height of Art Deco to, you know, the costumes that they've all put together. And I say they because the cast has really done a really fine job, along with the assistance of Tina Becker, to build their costumes and create a look that each character carries with them. And it makes them pop. You know, nobody really quite looks the same. Everybody has their own little style. And it is. It's a very, it's a very stylish mm. show right down to Poirot's spats. 
which he has. I provided my own spats. He provided his own spats. <laughs> you just have them around? I actually had a pair of white, because I'm me, I had a pair of spats already, but I only had white spats, which would be for the clothes that I would wear when we were in Istanbul. So I bought a pair of gray spats to go with his suit on the train. Mm -hmm. No one is surprised. <laughs> no, nobody. Nobody at all. But yeah, to do this play and not utilize the Art Deco style um, as much as possible, I think would be almost... It would be a real disservice because that's half the that's half the fun aesthetically is to see just how incredibly impressive and how incredibly imaginative you can be with straight lines and and right angles. It, it's going to be a lot of fun. And the other idea that hit me was I never ever want a time to be where the audience from beginning to end do not see the train. So I'm not going to have the curtain closed. I don't want to give too much away, but. The train will always be there when they're in the cafe in the beginning, when they're at the end. It's always going to be... It's a character as much as the people. And I, I kind of want it to be the wow factor of the show behind the performances. Talking about style, I just wanted to say that the cast, since we are very close, we all took a little field trip to the Strasbourg Railroad and went on a train ride together to kind of get the feel of it, to get some photos. We went in our costumes and it was just a great day, but we... We rode on the Marion car, which is the parlor car, and it was just beautiful in there. And I think it gave us some ideas even for for our train. And then to speak about my character, I was just going to say Mary Debenham, I feel like she's a little bit of a nervous person. She has a little, which is kind of just like myself, really. I, I'm also a nervous person, so I think it's easy to play her. <laughs> And Princess, what was it like for you to be on the train? It, I'd never been on one. First time, I swear to you. Oh, no way. I'd never been on one. So that was my first time. And we were originally in a, the, the parlor car, parlor, right, yeah. which was lovely. We had a bartender and beautiful velvet chairs and carpeting. It was really lovely. And then the management of the railroad loved us being there. So they said, come on over to the presidential car. So that was the one that was truly dated old wood and small staterooms and it was really really impressive and fun and harry truman lost. rode on that car and harry oh, truman yeah. rode on that car <laughs> so it for me it was wonderful a little slice of history that i got to sit in in my furs and feathers <laughs> and let, let me tell you watching them in costume sitting on the train car i i kind of forgot that i was there to take pictures i was just really enjoying taking in the sight of seeing the cast having a blast being on a train dressed up in their characters we we, we had a little cocktail before we got got going with the the photos and it was just it was the best field trip i'd ever been on you know? other passengers took photos of us oh yeah <laughs> on, on the platform and everything like mm -hmm. they wanted to gather around they were just in awe of they asked people. when we were doing a show at the station like oh sorry you have to come to hazelton <laughs> a bit of a trip for lancaster but if you can manage what is intriguing is that you adam do have a sense of history as your trade and your passion as well as theater and i'm curious this was a fraught time you're talking 1930s what's going on in the world in addition to the fact that somebody's been murdered what are the extra historical references or context for this it's so fascinating because Agatha Christie made these little bubble worlds even when there was so much going on in the world around but but the outside world would always seep in. Um, so these are people who are living in decadence. They're on an art deco train. They're being, you know, they are at the height of luxury. But we're in the middle of the depression. And it's not just in America. that It's a worldwide depression. And that creeps in from the sides with, with some of the characters who would be considered to be more, more working class. 
And the whole the whole conceit of why the murder happens in the first place is actually tied back to mob activity in the late 1920s and as the 1920s rolled into the 1930s. So you have the you have kind of the the idealized 1920s that is twisted by what would end up because of prohibition and bootleggers. And that finds its way all the way over to Europe, all the way over to Turkey, all the way over to Istanbul because of the people who are on this train. And there's such a wide variety of people from all across Europe and America that quote unquote find themselves somehow on this train that you get these cross sections of people outside of just the the milieu that they would normally be in. You have your upper class people, but you also have the folks that serve them. And then you have just creeping around the edges of the show what's going on in Europe in the 1930s. The slide into fascism, the the anti-Semitism of Nazi Germany rising to power and Hitler really getting his claws in. And it's, it's never mentioned per se. Hitler is never mentioned. Nazism is never mentioned. But there is a moment at the end of the show, and this is even brought out more than the book, because when the book was written in 1934, there there was not um christie didn't necessarily have the license that she felt to even talk about some of this stuff because they were the neighbors of britain britain didn't know what way things were going but you have poirot who has always had this iron sense of right and wrong the sense that the law is something that must be followed because it is a constant and this is a case that makes him question that constancy this is a case that makes him question the the ideal of justice with a capital j And at the very moment he is questioning that, you have these various forces in Europe and around the world pushing back against ideas of freedom and democracy and fairness and human rights. And for Poirot, while this is a case that's going to make him question his sense of justice, he sees not holding that up as being another part of the crumbling civilization that he is in. He sees the writing on the wall. He sees where the 1930s are going. And that scares him as much as the fact that faced with the facts of this case, he is now beginning to question those pillars that he believes all of society is built on as well. And so the image of being on a train going somewhere that plays into this notion of civilization going somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, trains, industrialization were such signs of progress and such symbols of progress, but The idea of progress is that you're always moving forward, but when you're moving, you're not always moving forward. Sometimes you're just moving, and sometimes you're moving at a very fast pace, and sometimes the train gets stuck, as the train does in the Orient Express, and that's as much much an allegory for how civilizations work as well. Now, Bill, as someone who has to keep this momentum going and direct a show that is a mystery, and you're in this confined space... How are you leading these folks to interact so that you'll keep us on the edge of our seats? Well, luckily, Ken Ludwig is a good enough writer that I can rely on how he has them pivoted against each other in the script. But also, it's really, to boil it down to the simplest terms, it's really a matter of telling them where to stand and when to face each other, in a sense. There are some great moments where certain characters really get in each other's faces, and others are pulling them apart. And it really makes you wonder when you're watching all of that come to a come to a head who who really is the responsible party here is it that guy who's about to slug that person is it that lady who's about to yell at that person who who's behind this and i think that the fun of it is really like, you, you have a really good skeleton a really nice set of bones to put some strong meat on and i did that by picking a cast that i knew worked and then you know the idea of building the trains 
what better place for a good old-fashioned murder mystery than a claustrophobic setting where tension really starts to set in and it, it becomes a question of you know who's going to turn on who and you get a you get you get flavors of that throughout this play you get the claustrophobic sense you get the idea of you know this person's turning on that person or or can that person be trusted or who's going to be next even why are you on the train princess i'm heading to paris i haven't said why nor do i know but she's going to paris with her assistant but i'm sure adam knows why she's going to paris so judging from the original book, when she went into exile from Russia after the revolution, she became a French citizen. So she was traveling on holiday and returning to Paris. So she actually has a French passport. That's why when Poirot reads it, oh, you are, you know, you are Russian, but you have a French passport is the implication in parentheses afterwards. As the governess, what is a rewarding scene for you? So I find myself in a very compromising position that I get to play. I, I feel like my character is also, the reason that she's on the train may be one thing, but I think she's really, her life is taking her in a different direction that she's kind of really focused on. But even that is a little bit of a mystery that you find out. And I, I feel like that's what's great about the whole cast is I feel like everybody could be seen as somebody who has a little something to hide, which makes them all very interesting. And I've, I've, been, I've been having a lot of fun as Poirot. He's such an annoying man. He's a know-it-all. Um, and he's very vain and he's very fastidious, but at the end of the day, he also does know a lot. So he's, he's convenient as a character in a mystery because you have this person with wrinkles. An audience should have a, a bit of a sense of the, not everything that Poirot does is likable. I mean, not every interaction that he has with other people is likable. He has a bit of a, he has a bit of a charm to him perhaps, but then he also can be grating. He also can be, um, cajoling. And that's what makes a detective character in detective fiction interesting. I mean, you'll have your Marlowe's and everybody who would make the hard-boiled detectives, but that's not Poirot. He's not a, a hard-boiled detective. He's a little guy who always thinks that he's right. And sometimes that gets challenged, but oftentimes he is the smartest person in the room, and that can be annoying. And, and I can be annoying, too. As so. a cast member, I, I will say there was a moment where I, I said, why are we just listening to him? Because there's moments where he chastises some of us or or will tell us to sit down or do this, and, and we just listen. And I, I was thinking, he's just a, a detective. He's not a, an authority figure, a policeman, but he has this this way about him where he, he gets what he wants. The power of the mustache. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, as director, you've said mostly you've been telling the actors to turn here or stand there, but it's certainly more complicated than that. What about the momentum, like the train wheels are going and the train's picking up or slowing down? There is a rhythm, there is an arc to a story like mm -hmm. this. As a mystery, it begins with the unfolding of a mystery, the catalyst, if you will, which we've done in a very creative way, I feel. I believe in the script it says that certain things happen on stage in silhouette, so you have the, the implication of certain situations where I made little short videos for the beginning and the end to bookend and kind of accentuate what's happening. So there's that element of it and you get to do a certain creative, there's a certain creative freedom to doing it that way because now what's pigeonholed to being on a stage and move here, do that. Now you have it at your fingertips in front of you on a computer so that you can tell a story differently. As far as what's on the stage, it seems from my perspective, and this just might be what's happening in my brain having read it, from the minute the train leaves the station, both metaphorically and literally, action starts to pick up. Things start to go awry. Certain people are doing certain things that maybe they shouldn't be doing. And then you have that impact moment in the story, and that's when 
the train literally breaks down and now they're stuck. So who are they stuck with? Not just a detective or an official, but another passenger who just won't keep his nose clean. And it's not even because it's in his nature. You were forced into the situation. Everybody on this train was forced into this situation. And it's their jobs one way or another to find their way out of it and get the train moving again. So even talking about the metaphor of the train being the rise of industrialism and the way the world moves forward, like the train is also a metaphor for the story moving forward in, in a very, very big way. And that almost feels like it goes without saying, but when you really sit back and think about it, every scene is written to happen at a particular point in this train's journey from beginning to end so that it really helps with the momentum. Like my favorite thing is where I'm sure it, it was annoying when I was directing everybody to do it. But one of my all time favorite moments is between the platform and getting on the train. I just love watching everybody go from one side of the stage to the other, from one train car to the other, because you pass through the train cars. I built it in such a way that it's like you're walking back and forth on a real train because I want the audience to feel that. I want them to see that. I want them to be in awe over how well and even with lighting, it's all being used in front of them to help propel the story and the actors do their part to propel the story as well. Bill and Joyce both, in addition to directing and being involved in, in theater, they also make films. And so to be able to combine two of his passions into one in this project is really, it's really exciting to see Bill being able to bring his talents in filmmaking to the stagecraft as well. And to be able to see them being incorporated and a couple of long nights filming, you know, individual bits, but then mm -hmm. seeing it all come together through the, through the editing and through, through the process of bringing the show together has been really fun, really interesting. Also the art of using projection in a stage production is commonly used on Broadway now. It evolved into that, but we don't see it a lot in community theater. So having our audiences able to see an elaborate set and glamorous costumes and now the use of projection, we took a step forward and I think they'll marvel at it that they haven't seen this before and, and Bill's bringing that to our production, which we're really proud of. Who's going to tell us the dates and times? Allow me to refer you to the president of PTPA. So, Murder on the Orient Express opens Friday, March 17th and runs through Sunday, March 26th. The performances are on Friday and Saturday nights at 7, Sunday afternoons at 3 p.m. And these performances will be BYOB. We do have a bar with non-alcoholic beverages and snacks available, but uh, audience members can bring in their own alcohol and um, have, a, have a good time getting on the train with us. And we, we look forward to having them. Actor Adam Randis, Hercule Poirot, president of PTPA, director Bill Amos, and actors Lisa Darty and Joyce Vandermark, speaking with us about Murder on the Orient Express in the adaptation for stage by Ken Ludwig, opening at the Pennsylvania Theater of Performing Arts in Hazleton this Friday, March 17th, running through Sunday the 26th, shows the 17th and 18th and 24th and 25th at 7, and Sunday matinees the 19th and 26th at 3. That's the Pennsylvania Theater of Performing Arts, 212 West Broad Street in Hazleton, Murder on the Orient Express. For more information, ptpashows.org, ptpashows.org, Again, opening March 17th, running through Sunday, March 26th, Fridays and Saturdays at 7, Sundays at 3, ptpashows.org.